Thank you, John. That's great. This is a, a blessed day to hear from Tori and have John play for us. And I want to welcome all of you who are visiting as well as those who are regular with us. If you have a Bible this morning, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos chapter 5? And if you're visiting with us, our ushers have extra Bibles and we would love to give you one. Just raise your hand if you need one. I wonder if the nation of Israel had a pledge of allegiance. I wonder if the little Jewish children stood and said, I pledge allegiance to the divided states of Israel, because remember, they were divided, Israel and Judah. I wonder if they said, one nation under God, divisible because they were split. And then like Americans, I wonder if they said, with liberty and justice for all. I mean, we, we say that, right? But I couldn't help as we've been reading through the book of Amos to see so many parallels to America and the condition of the nation of Israel. Now, I want to say from the start, I don't believe that America and Israel are a one-to-one -one correspondence. The nation of Israel was a, a, a community of people that had covenanted to live under God uh, as God called them to himself. But certainly our, our nation was founded on Christian principles and it has moved far away from that. And we read in the book of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a disgrace to every nation. And so throughout history, you know that God has destroyed even the mightiest of empires because of their rebellion, like Rome. Who would have ever thought the Roman Empire would fall? So Amos was called by God. He, he, he didn't grow up wanting to be a prophet. He was a shepherd. But God said, Amos, I want you to go to the nation of Israel. It's around 750 BC. And you need to preach to them and tell them that they've worn out my patience and I'm going to destroy them. In fact, I'm going to send a nation from the north, which was going to be Assyria. And they're going to, they're going to be devastated by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were ruthless people. We know from history that when the Assyrians attacked a nation, they would skin people alive. They would poke their eyes out, pull their tongues out. They would put fish hooks in their mouth and drag them out through the walls. And so it would be sort of like God sending Billy Graham or somebody to stand on the steps of the, the Capitol building and say, God is, is going to destroy America through Iran. The Iranians are going to come and they're going to destroy us. And, and it's because of your military pride, your immorality, your hypocritical religion, and unless you repent and turn to God, it's over. And of course, that would, have, that would have gone over real well. I doubt that either Amos or that message would make it to K-Love because it wasn't positive, encouraging, <laughs> K-Love. And yet, this is, this is where we are in the Bible. Amos has a stern message to the people that if they don't turn to the Lord, that judgment is coming. And it came 20 years after he preached. It's kind of like when 911 happened. Everybody was in a frenzy to return to God, but it sort of just went back to usual in many ways. So, beginning in chapter 5, we saw last week that chapters 3 through 6 of Amos are all one big message saying, listen, if you don't come back to me, judgment's coming. Well, last week, God particularly pointed out, he said, look, I keep disciplining you to get your attention. What's it going to take? And finally, he said, prepare to meet your God. Well, beginning in chapter 5 now, we'll pick up in verse 1. When Amos starts off with a, a song, 
Now, we don't have many songs like this. I guess the closest to this would be country music in that songs about sorrow. You know, usually we, we, we reserve singing for happy times, you know, parties, celebrations, or um, holidays. But it was common back then to sing for funerals. They called them dirges or lamentations. And so Amos began to sing a song that God had taught him and, and given him about the coming destruction on the land. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this. Lord Jesus, thank you that the Bible is the word of God. We need to listen to your word. Thank you that you have revealed it to us and that it's alive and powerful. So speak to us as a church, as a country, and as individuals. And may you show that you are still alive, Lord Jesus. You are risen, and you're Lord of the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's start in verse 1. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. So now he's going to begin to sing. I'm not going to sing this, you know, so you can thank me later. She has fallen. She will not rise again. The virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God. I want you to picture, we've all seen like pictures after uh, World War I or World War II where you'll, well, you, you'll just pass through and you'll just see bodies lying everywhere, dead bodies. Listen to this. The city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. So there's going to be this massive decimation. There's going to be a population decrease quickly. For thus says the Lord of hosts, to the house of Israel, seek me, God says, that you might live. Don't resort to Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come into trouble. Now, what he means by this is those three towns were popular religious cities in northern Israel, right? Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Beersheba was in the south, but it was still a place of idol worship. This is where the Jews had Burger King religion. They had it their way. It was similar to the true Judaism, but they changed a lot of things, much like a lot of churches in America. You know, there are, you can still kind of gather it's a Christian church, but they just do it their way. You know, you don't have to believe in the Trinity. And so God is saying, look, when you're in trouble... Everybody prays. He goes, but I'm telling you right now, don't go to your man-made religious places to think that's going to help you. Don't go there because they're going to go into captivity. And sometimes when we get into trouble or we have a problem, we're like, oh, God, get me out of this, or, or we come up with some human solution rather than seeking God and saying, God, what, what do you want? What are you teaching me? What, what can I learn from you? We lean on our own understanding. So God says, through Amos, seek the Lord that you might live. And I really want to encourage you to do that. If you're not seeking God, the Bible says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He loves you. He wants you to have a relationship with him. But it's so easy to neglect that. Seek the Lord lest he break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it consume with none to quench it for Bethel. Why? For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. In other words, they don't do what's right. They don't care about what's right. So in, in, in the midst of this song, 
Amos is led by the Lord to sing something about God. So he goes, verse 8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion. Now, these are two consolations. Or, or, you've heard of, not Orion, Orion. You've heard of Orion's belt. So he goes, look, the God you're dealing with is a God who made these great star constellations. Pleiades is a seven-starred constellation. I was just reading about it in the news. I was like, wow, cool. They mentioned it. Um, those of you who have studied astronomy, it's pretty fascinating. But if God made the stars, right, if he changes deep darkness into morning, if he darkens day into night, look what it says about him. He calls for the waters of the sea and he pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So it's just a, like a, a reality check. You remember when you were in elementary school, you made a terrarium and you're like, it's cool. Like if you, if you cover it over and, and the condensation will rise up like the moisture and then, then the water falls back down like a rain and it keeps perpetuating itself. And we sort of like, oh, so there's no need for God. So when we, when we talk about the weather, we're like, man, it's scorching hot. And boy, Doppler radar. We don't even think about God. Folks, if it rains, it's because God draws up the water and he pours it back down on the earth. But we've been programmed. No, it's not God. It's Mother Nature. This is the God we deal with. And it is he, look at verse 9, who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong. So that destruction comes upon the fortress. So... They're like, God, who, we don't have to worry about him. He goes, well, you should. And then he talks about how they've received people like this. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. This is what they were like then. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. So back then, there were, it was common for elders to stand in the city gates and bring judgments and corrections and say, you're wrong and you need to stop it, and you need to pay restitution. Well, how do you feel when people reprove or correct you? Do you say to your spouse, you know, honey, you're absolutely right. I, I've been very selfish, and I appreciate you helping to bring that to my attention. Do teenagers say, mother and father, you are right. I have been disobedient and rebellious, and I submit to your authority, and I accept the grounding. Here's my cell phone. In fact, keep it for an extra week so that I might learn <laughs> for a lifetime. See, we live in a culture that hates to be corrected. And you know what's scary is when it comes to the preaching of the Bible, that there are many people who hate to hear the Bible. Isn't that hard to imagine? When I first became a Christian, I went to this seminar. There was 10,000 people there. And I was listening to the Bible, and I was weeping, and I was, I was changing, and I was learning from God, and I was growing and it was a break time, and we were out in, in the lobby, and we were getting snacks, and, and I was struck. I overheard these two young men close to my age talking, and one of them said, I hate that guy who's talking up there. And, and, and I nearly fell over. I'm like, what? I, I, I would have plucked out my eyes and given him to the guy. I was in love with a man who would point me to Jesus. I hate that guy. See, when you hear the Word of God, the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. So... Be careful not to hate and, and get angry when God speaks to you. Accept that. The Bible says wise people love correction. But God says because you impose heavy rent on the poor and take a tribute of grain from them and you've built houses of well-hewn stone, God says you will not live in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards 
yet you won't drink their wine. This was a strange time in the nation of Israel. There was a lot of prosperity. There was a lot of wealthy people. But the way most of them got wealthy was by exploiting the poor guys. They were ripping people off miserably, and nobody was willing to stand up for the little guy. In fact, in Amos, the needy and poor are often called the righteous. And God is offended by the fact that these poor people were getting rich. I mean, the rich people were getting poor through ripping off the little guy. They were conspicuous consumers. There was corruption in the judicial system and just a genuine breakdown of social justice. Now, thankfully, this doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, we don't hear about this. One commentary said this, a nation that no longer has the decency to maintain a fair and disinterested legal system is a nation deserving destruction. You're like, well, thankfully, there's no political corruption or anything like that going on now. And so God is saying, look, you build up this great wealth through exploiting people, but you're not going to enjoy it. Verse 12, for I know your transgressions. Many are your sins who distress the righteous. You accept bribes. You turn aside the poor in the gate. And it had gotten to the point where people who knew better, they wouldn't even say anything. Look, it says, therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent for it's an evil time. And that's interesting because it says, you hate when someone reproves you. So it got to the point, I think, where people were no longer even speaking out. They're just like, well, you know, that's just the way they are around here. You know, I guess we're just going to have to accept that you can go in whatever bathroom you want. Because what's the point? Now, I don't know that God was commending them for keeping silent, but that's the way it was. But look at, look at God's gracious invitation. Verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. See, there's a lot of people that honestly think God is with them, and he's not. He's not with you just because somebody says, God bless you, or Dios te bendigo, or God be with you. He's not with you or me when we're walking in wickedness. Now, as a Christian, he's always there. He's always present. He's always with us in that sense. But people can have this false sense that if I go to church, man, me and God, we're good. God says, no, verse 15, hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gates. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Think about our culture. Just about how much of our entertainment revolves around evil. How many sitcoms and movies and comedies are all about immorality and drunkenness and partying and stupidity and blasphemy and violence. And, and we love that. This is a riot, you know. Hate evil and love what's good. Establish justice. Maybe God will be gracious. But God says in verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, there's wailing in all the plazas. See, God's envisioning 20 years, 30 years from now, there's going to be so many dead people around here when those Assyrians come through. People are going to be screaming in terror. Like, like when 911 happened. In all the streets, they say, alas, alas. They call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. Back then, this seems really weird, but they paid people 
to mourn and wail at your funeral. Doesn't that seem odd? Like you're like, well, do you want just the minimal package or you want us to really go all out, you know? But, but we do weird stuff too. I mean, we pay people to put us in really expensive boxes, you know, that it's just going to rot and be eaten by termites. So, but, but, but God's envisioning all of this, this sorrow. Because God says in verse 17, I shall pass through the midst of you. And you're like, well, wait, if God passes through, that's good, right? Isn't that good for God to pass through the midst of us? Well, what they misunderstood is he's, they're like, in their mind, they're like, our God's going to come because they knew Assyria's power was growing and, 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 and Assyria was a threat to them, but they're like, God's going to come and, and the day of the Lord is coming and he's going to destroy all of our enemies. And God goes, no, the day of the Lord's coming and I'm going to pass through the midst of you when I come through, it's going to be like a great, devastating hurricane. So, so they go, no, no, no. We long for the day of the Lord when God comes to make things right. Look at verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It's not going to be what you expected. It's going to be darkness, not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or, or he goes home and he leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? It would be kind of like this. When people say, I can't wait to meet Jesus. I want you to think about that. That's kind of a two-edged sword. If you're surrendered and walking with Jesus, that's exciting, right? You should want to can't wait to meet Jesus. Oh, Lord. And hear him say, well done. But if you're indifferent to Christ... But somebody's giving you problems, and you're like, I can't wait to meet Jesus. He's going to hammer you, right? You need to sort of think that through. When he comes back, it's going to be you first that he examines, me first, right? So, so he says, you need to think this through. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Remember, prepare to meet your God. So, so I think the people at this point were going, well, wait a minute. Yeah, we're ready. We're very religious, we have, we sing. Didn't you just hear us sing? We go to church. We give. We, we make the sacrifices. We're very religious. And God's going, yeah, you're religious, but you're very evil and immoral. It's inconsistent. And so God, now this is kind of challenging. God goes in verse 21, I hate, look, I hate. I reject your festivals. I don't delight in your solemn assembly. So they were still having church. And God's going, yeah, you're making me sick. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, just keep them. I won't accept them. I won't even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. My kids and I always like to tease each other. And one of the things we tease about is none of us can sing. But that doesn't stop us. So we'll always tease one another when somebody's singing. So one of the things we do is if someone's singing... We'll hold our ears and go, ah, and run out of the room like, please stop, right? But for God to say, because this morning as I was listening to everyone singing the first service and just worship, it was so cool to just hear the church worshiping. But for God to say, stop. I don't even want to listen to your music. You're like, what, God doesn't like music? Yeah, he likes, he likes to be worshiped in song, provided that he's worshiped by surrender, he likes a living sacrifice 
more than just a lip service sacrifice. And God says, here's what I really want you to do. Start doing what's right. Let justice roll down from like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Like, don't go, well, I'm down to cursing my spouse out. I only do it three times a week now. As though once in a while, if we do what's right, God's like, this is great. No, change, turn to God. Let Jesus change you and start letting righteousness become something that's more of a habit. And, and this isn't something we do in our strength. It's something we do in his strength as we surrender to him and say, Lord, I don't want to be a, a weekend warrior that goes to church and sings about you the rest of the week. I live like the devil. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. But then I come back to church. And I'm like, oh, praise Jesus. He's like, no, turn and follow me. Make, make your relationship with me the center of your life and, and, and then treat others accordingly. Not, oh, when I get older, I'll do that. Or if I wasn't married to this person, if I didn't work with these people, I have to live in this place, then I'd be better. He goes, no, this is something that we all can do. And it's, I'm like, Amos, you're, you're, you're slaughtering us. But we need to hear this from God and be encouraged to, to walk close to the Lord. And so God, he turns to their past. He says, remember the way you used to live way back when I first called you out of the nation of Egypt? Verse 25, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years? Remember, God would lead them around with pillars of fire. But look, he says, you also carried around Sikuth, your king, and Kayan, your images. These were two astral deities, star gods. And we don't really read about that in the Old Testament, but we learn it here. And then Stephen quotes this in the book of Acts when he's preaching to the Jews in Jesus' day. He goes, you're just like your stiff-necked forefathers who, 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 yeah, you were religious, but you had your other stuff on the side. And it's kind of like how a lot of people, Christianity in America, you know, you can have the best of both. You can live in the world, live just like unbelievers, but you can also be like a born-again Christian. You're evangelical. And God's going, no, that, that's not what I'm looking for. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord. Like God saying, Iran's going to come a lot of people are going to die. A lot of you are going to be carried away. Because that's what the Assyrians did. They carried away much of the population back to Assyria. You're like, well, this isn't very positive and encouraging. And then chapter 6. Well, what's God so, like, upset with? Well, pic picture the average wealthy person's day. They lay around, lazy, not working, eating the finest foods, going to the malls, enjoying their beach homes and their extra houses and all their plush luxury and stockpiling their stuff. Meanwhile, violence and poverty and injustice is going on all around them. Verse 1, woe to those who are at, at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. Now, why would they feel secure? Because we're a strong nation. The distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and look. Now, now he's going to remind them of three cities that they had conquered. These three cities are, are, are cities that were under Israel's domain now. He goes, go to Kalna. Go over there from Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. We control them. He goes, but now I want you to think about this. Are they better than these kingdoms? Is their territory greater than yours? They fell. Why would you think God wouldn't judge you? And we go, well, 
That couldn't happen to America. Do you put off the day of your calamity? Would you bring near the seat of violence? Now picture the average poor person's household. They didn't even have a bed, right? I read in a commentary, they ate meat maybe three times a year. Three days a year they ate meat, right? That was the poor. Meanwhile, look at how the upper class were living. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall. You're like, but isn't that the American dream? We just, we just bought a new sleeper comfort bed with the finest of luxury. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Stockpile as much stuff as we can and be happy? We like to sit around for jam sessions, verse 5. We improvise to the sound of the harp and, like David, have, have composed songs. But no, not for God, but for themselves. So with all of this leisure time to improvise, does God not like music? Yeah, he likes music. Is it, is it bad to have a drink of wine? You drink wine from... Now, this word they translated sacrificial bowls. In Hebrew, it probably just, it can be, but it's usually just used a bowl. So all the other translations says you drink wine from bowls. I don't think the point is it's sacrificial bowls. It's you drink wine from bowls? I mean, most people can't even afford a, a sip of wine and you're splashing it around in bowls? And then you remember back then, oil was precious, olive oil. They cooked with it. They, they, they used it for healing. They used it for sanitation. Oil kept lice away. There was hygienic properties. And you know there are levels of oil. You know, when, like, like there's virgin olive oil, right? You ever bought, but have you ever bought extra virgin? I mean, there's levels of oil, and it gets more expensive. The first press, right? Now, the poor people would be glad to get any oil, a little bit, just to cook with. But look what these people were doing. He says, you anoint yourselves with the finest of the oils. You get the most expensive oil because you're worth it like L'Oreal. And you just opulently love. And instead, God says, but you haven't grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The word grieve there hasn't become sick. You haven't looked around at what's going on in your culture and poured out your heart to God. See, I think this is the root of it. God doesn't say it's bad to be rich. 1 Timothy 6 says, instruct those who are rich to be generous, not proud, ready to share, taking hold of true life. God doesn't say you're sinful if you're rich. But he says you can't serve God in money. And the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And if you're living just to stockpile and, and, and have vacations and, and, and put on your lovely things and go to the gym and your beauty treatments and your spa, God's going, you missed the boat. You should be grieving over the ruin of two things, our country and Christianity in America. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for what? Mourn for what? I thought we're supposed to be happy, happy, happy. But sometimes we need to mourn 
over the condition of, of our own relationship with God, over the churches, over the fact that in America, 50% of people claim to be born again. But statistically, there is absolutely no difference between the way people who call themselves Christians and people who don't live in terms of their morality, their ethics, their finances, divorce rate, drunkenness, immorality, homosexuality, you know. It's just, it's, it's sad. And, and churches are being ruined by blatant sin, and everybody's just like, huh? Instead of praying and grieving and saying, Lord, revive us, wake us up, change us, help us as a church to be different. Please spare our country. Yes, we deserve to be judged. But God, have mercy on us. Be gracious to us. Awaken us in the last days. Well, God says, therefore, you're going to go into exile at the head of the exiles. And that's what happened. They took the rich people first, the, the political people first. The sprawler's banqueting will, will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Well, that's one good thing. At least we're not a proud country, right? I mean, whew, we're not proud of our military strength. Like, who can mess with America? We're not proud of our intellectual greatness and superiority over the other nations. One of the reasons God detested the pride of this nation was because they took credit for their military accomplishments. And we're going to see that in a moment. So, so let's keep reading. He says in verse 8, I detest your citadels. I'll deliver up the city and all it contains it. And it'll be if 10 men are left in one house, they'll die. And then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he'll say to the one who's in the innermost part of the house, is there anyone else in there? Like imagine that. Just like after 911, sifting through the rubble. Is there anyone in this building? Anyone in this building? Now, this is really strange because it's going to be so bad that one will say, no one. Then he will answer, keep quiet. The name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. You go, what? When the Assyrians come through here and, and, and the dust settles and you're going around cleaning up from all of the destruction, people will say, keep quiet. The name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. And, and, and I'm going, what? Why? That doesn't even make sense. The name of the Lord needs to be mentioned all day long. Well, one commentary suggested this. Maybe they finally get it. Like this, this judgment came from the Lord. Don't mention him. We don't want him to pass back through again. Wow. Amos, come on, man. Work with us. Well, let's, let's finish up. Behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. So he closes. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow with oxen? Yet you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And again, remember he said, I detest your military pride. You who rejoice in low debar and say, have we not? By our own strength, taking Karnaim for ourselves. Lodabar and Karnaim were two cities that were powerful that Israel conquered. They, they were really growing as a military um, nation. 
they, they, were, they were achieving accomplishments. Remember when Great Britain sort of ruled the world at one time, and here we are in America. We don't lose wars. I mean, we've got the Persian Gulf, Desert Storm. We, we step in and we, we settle things once and for all. When we go into Hiroshima, that's it. Look what we have done. And God says, oh, I'm sorry. So you did it. By your own strength. We're the land of the free and the home of the brave. Oh, I see. So it's because Americans are so brave and strong and witty. Or is it the mercy and grace of God that for reasons known only to God, he has been very, very good to us. I love America. I'm so, aren't you, don't you thank God we live here? There's people that are dying daily and being arrested just for being Christians. There's millions of people in this world who are starving. They pray, give me this day my daily bread, and they mean it. So I'm not down on America, but there's so many parallels between Amos and America, and then Amos and the church in America. So God says in verse 14, Behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And again, it's going to be Assyria. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Hamath was at the northernmost. The brook of Arabah was at the southernmost. So it would be kind of like God saying, From sea to shining sea, troubles are coming. Well, that didn't make me feel very good. I was having a good day, Pastor, until I came to church and... You're such a Debbie Downer, right? But isn't it, isn't it good at times to soberly think about ourselves? It's, it's hard. You know, if you ever have a chance to study church history, it's always easy to look back in earlier generations and say, boy, they were really off base. How did they become like that? How did they miss the boat? But it's very difficult when you're within your own culture. It's like a fish in an aquarium. You don't really notice the water. That's normal, right? So when we read the Bible and, 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 and we can step back and say, wow, what, what can I learn from this? Aren't there some wonderful lessons that we could take away from this? And let me give you a couple. Number one, I really want to encourage you to pray for our country and for the church in America and for our church. I mean, we're all good at complaining about politics, but how much time do you spend grieving and praying to God for America? First Timothy 2 says we should pray for our kings and those who are in authority over us, that, that we as Christians might live peaceful lives in godliness and dignity. Pray for the churches in America. Think about all of the, the things that are, that are weakening the testimony of the church. Somebody once said, the reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. Right? Imagine when churches begin to have revivals, when the Holy Spirit awakens a deep desire for people to love Jesus, to live for him, to be honest and confess their sins to one another, pray for one another, and live lives that are, are different from the world, and live lives that are spirit-filled and love-centered and Christ-honoring and gospel-centered. Pray that for our church. We're not like the superior church. Pray that for all the churches in America. Pray that Christians will wake up, us. Preachers will preach from the Bible. Christians will live the Bible. 
Families, fathers will take spiritual leadership in their homes. Young people will return to their parents and stop wasting their lives and, and, and all of the, the damage that some of these things like Facebook inappropriately consumed or are doing to our culture. Pray for the education system. The, the poor in America, you know, whether you're, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I mean, say you're a Republican, you go, yeah, them, them darn socialists, you rob Peter to pay Paul, Paul will vote for you every time. And I'm going, okay. So what's your solution? How much do you give to the poor? What are you doing to help the injustice, the corruption? How much do you pray? What, what country? So, so I'm not suggesting that, you know, you should vote a certain way. That's not what we're supposed to do as pastors, name individuals. I would suggest that you consider some of the things that are coming, depending on who's in office and the potential for who's going to be in the Supreme Court that's going to make decisions that will drastically affect our country. People have often said, why isn't America mentioned in last day's prophecy? And one answer I heard was, maybe they won't be quite as great. Like, are you kidding me? We're destined to forever. We just, we're going to have a tricentennial. Maybe. Maybe not. But, but the beauty is, the gospel is, is, is the only hope, right? The gospel is a power of God to save individuals, the gospel is what builds churches. The gospel is what revives nations. We saw that in England under Wesley. The gospel sweeping through our country is our only hope. And I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, this message is not to make you just go out of here and say, I'm worthless, I'm a failure. No. Run to Jesus and find fresh cleansing and forgiveness and power and mercy and and seek first his kingdom and pray that as a church, God continues to work through us to make a difference. We're not just helpless victims and the devil's just destroying us. We're children of the king. We're washed in the blood. We're on the Lord's side. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. If God be for us, who can be against us? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And if you haven't come to the Lord this morning, if you're not sure if you're a Christian, if you have never really sought the Lord and, and said, Jesus, I do believe that you died for me, and I want to follow you. I believe you rose for me, and I want to be forgiven. I don't want to be wiped out. I want to be washed in your blood. Then come to Jesus right there. It's a gift. Jesus says, the gift of God is everlasting life. Whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. It's not about being religious. It's about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And I fear that some of you who sit every Sunday may miss that. If God's quickening your heart this morning, do something about it. The Bible says, whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. You can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior right there in your seat. And if you'd like to talk to one of us about it, we'd be happy to talk to you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the word. It's sobering. But it's also a blessing to know that you are gracious, that you did not send Jesus into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Thank you that you raised up men like Amos to boldly cry out against the culture. 
And Lord, I'm sure there was a remnant then that listened to him, and I pray that today there will be a remnant, the church in America, that you will revive your elect and call us to live godly lives. Forgive us for the way that we neglect you, that we indulge ourselves with pleasures and recreation in an unbalanced way. Help us to seek you that we may live. We pray for President Obama. We pray for the upcoming elections. We pray that you will be favorable to our nation and turn us back to the Lord. May righteousness and justice and mercy prevail again. May there be racial unity and may there be less of a disparity between the rich and the poor. May there be generosity among the churches. And it's an exciting time to live, Father. We pray that as a church, we will make a difference and that this church will be a hospital and sinners will come streaming in to find forgiveness. And Lord, forgive us for our pride and our military pride and our accomplishments. Thank you for sparing America your judgment. We pray that the churches will, will turn to the word, turn to the Lord, and that Jesus will reign throughout America and that many of the inner cities that are being destroyed will be revived and brought hope through the gospel. We praise you, Jesus, that you're coming again. Help us as a church to make a difference while we can. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.